So I want to talk tonight about something really practical. Sometimes when we have Dharma talks, they're, they're sort of about Zen itself. Well, tonight I want to talk about how to apply our practice to a problem that I think is quite widespread and um, corrosive in our culture. So that's what my focus is going to be. And, and the title of tonight is How to Love Our Adversaries. How to Love Our Adversaries. Zen is filled with adversaries. There's just a huge wealth of stories about um, adversarial interactions. So I want to tell one. I could have told any number of these, but I, I love this particular story. And this is about Mazu. And Mazu was one of our Zen ancestors from the ninth century in China. And Mazu was known for, shall we say, being quite direct. <clears throat> so when, one day, a new monk came to the monastery and uh, came to Mazu and said, what is the meaning of Zen? And Mazu said, bow down. And as the new monk was bowing down, Mazu kicked him in the chest. Now, as the um, stories often go in Zen, the, the monk was awakened in that moment. So what, what, is the, what the heck does this mean? And why, why um, should I tell this story? Well, we have to unpack it a little bit. Um, at the time that Mazu lived, in the, in the 10 years prior to this story, a third of the Chinese population died due to famine and war. Just imagine that, a third of everyone you know dead. So we can imagine that Mazu saw a stream of young men coming to become monks, coming to the monastery over and over, and these men must have been carrying terrible experiences, losing their families, losing their village, losing their livelihood, maybe being conscripted into being one of the fighters. So in, in the, that poetic way of speaking that, that has come down to us in, from the Chinese Zen, that question, what is the meaning of Zen, really is saying, all right, teacher, what have you got to offer me? What is this practice all about? And so when Mazu kicked him in the chest, what Mazu was saying was, this practice is about your life as it is right now. Wake up. There is not time to waste. You might be the next one to starve to death. You might be the next one to be killed by war. Don't wait. Wake up now. Pow. Right in the chest. There wasn't time for Mazu to be a gentle teacher. It was tough times and it required tough response. So Mazu's um, fierce compassion would probably bring a lawsuit today. It wouldn't go over real well. Um, but, you know, it, it shows us that our suffering can really flower as clarity. So let's take a look at how we might have an adversarial relationship that's fruitful, that can also flower as clarity. 
Let's look at that together. And the first question I guess that comes up is, who is kicking us in the chest? Who is this that's kicking us? You and me, right here to wake us up. You know, and we could, we could rephrase that question. Who is helping us wake up? And you know who it is? It's our adversaries. Everywhere. We have adversaries everywhere. Because we're human beings. So just think about all the kinds of adversaries we have right now in our culture. We have red states versus blue states. We have um, one gender versus another gender. We have one race versus another race. We have rich people versus poor people. Class versus class. Over and over, we just have all these categories of adversaries. So let's utilize them. Let's utilize them. I think that adversaries are necessary. Like Mazu was necessary for that young monk to wake up. Our adversaries are necessary too because they help us see more broadly. You know, if all we are is a homogenous group that has one opinion and does things one way, we won't wake up very easily at all. We'll just stay in our little shared delusion. But an adversary, ah, you know, we can make better decisions with our adversaries than we can oftentimes with our friends because we have a broader view with our adversaries. Our era is particularly uh, challenging in terms of adversaries because we've gone one step further than simply that kind of adversarial relationship Mazu and the monk had, which was one that was there to help them both wake up. Um, in our case, what we've done is we've turned our adversaries into our enemies. And that's not a healthy thing to do. I like um, uh, one of the writers in the New York Times, an opinion writer, his name is Thomas Edsel, and he often writes uh, uh, really clearly, quoting a lot of scientists and, and good thinkers in his in his um, column. And he wrote one the other day called Trump True Believers Have Their Reasons. Trump True Believers Have Their Reasons. And this is one line I just want to read to you that I think sums up uh, this, this, uh, this issue uh, with adversaries. He wrote this, The populists' anti-intellectual right absolutely believe that the intellectuals are not only out of touch, but are also ungodly and sneaky and therefore think they must be stopped before they ruin America. Meanwhile, the intellectual left really do believe the Trumpers are racist, sexist, homophobic authoritarians who can't spell and are going to destroy the country if they are not stopped. So both groups believe that they are correct and that the others are about to destroy the country. And so even violence is justified in stopping them from doing that. That seemed a pretty accurate description to me, that we not only see each other as adversaries, but we see each other as enemies who must be eliminated. So the problem here seems to me not to be the varying beliefs about what's the best policy, you know, how best to 
educate our children or how best to create public transportation or health care. The problem is about the certainty behind the beliefs. So both sides are certain that we are right and you are wrong. And this has a word for it called hubris. You know, and, and hubris it can be can be thought of as having excessive pride or dangerous overconfidence. And I love that phrase, dangerous overconfidence. That's what I think we have. Neither side is free of this. Both sides have this. And we certainly can't love our adversaries if our minds are clouded by dangerous overconfidence. Our 14 mindfulness trainings, the first three of them, are about knowing what our views are and holding them very lightly because we know that we're going to be wrong most of the time. And so we don't want to use our wrong ideas as some sort of a weapon against others. We don't want to have dangerous overconfidence. So we have to learn ways to drop our dangerous overconfidence and learn how to love our adversaries. Learn how to love our adversaries. Tall order, huh? Um, you know, most religions and philosophies espouse some version of this, loving our adversaries. You know, Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek. He taught us to love your enemy as yourself. And Buddhism offers some concrete tools about this. And I'm going to talk about those because, you know, that's what I know. Um, I don't really know the other, the other paths so well. But we don't have a corner on this. We don't want to be dangerously overconfident that we've got the right way here and nobody else has figured this out. Uh, we're not... We're not the only ones. This is a core human truth. But I can offer us two methods that come from our Zen practice that we can use to love our adversaries. And those two methods are flipping the story and making our adversary more beautiful. So I'll talk about each one of those in turn. Okay, let's talk about flipping the story. What do I mean by that? Humans naturally create stories. It, it's how we evolved to um, mold ourselves into clans and tribes. We have stories that we share together about who we are, about who they are, about what's meaningful and why. You know, we tell stories about us and not us you know, to define who our tribe is. But what if the stories we tell aren't true? What if they aren't true? We assume our stories are true, but are they really true? It's one of the things I've learned for myself after practicing with the mindfulness trainings. When I look at my views, I see that my views are constantly up for revision that what I thought was true yesterday, I'm not so sure today. 
I'm not so sure. And sometimes I can see that I've just been outright wrong. Likely I'm, there's, I'm wrong about some things right now in this talk. And I'll look back on it maybe in a year or two years and think, oh, how could I have said that? So what if our stories are wrong? So if our stories are wrong, maybe the suffering we experience from our adversarial friends isn't because of their actions, but because of the story we tell about their actions. The story we tell about their actions might be the real source of our suffering. When we tell stories about our adversaries, we often tell stories of conflict. We tell stories about winners and losers, about gain and loss. It's conflict. It's, it's me against you. It's us against them. But what if we were able to flip the story? What if we were able to flip the story from stories of conflict to stories of compassion instead? Flip it from stories of conflict to stories of compassion. So let's pick one of the things that's going on in our culture right now that we're telling stories about. And, and I think most of us here probably can relate to this story. I'm going to pick on us a lot more than I'm going to pick on them, right? So, uh, so see if this story, if this story um, resonates with you. So the story is anti-vaxxers are idiots. And this is a story we hold. So let's look at how we have dangerous overconfidence when telling that story of conflict. So see if these threads of the story resonate for you. They don't get vaccines because they don't care about the common good. We do, but they don't. How about this one? They're so stupid that they believe anything Fox News tells them. We don't. No, we get our news from a variety of sources and, 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 and we get the real truth, but not them. How about this thread? The Delta variant is all their fault because if they'd been vaccinated, it wouldn't even exist. Right. Do we really know that? You know? So those are all stories of conflict. Right? They're stories of our hubris, our dangerous overconfidence. They all say in one way or another, we're right, they're wrong, we'd be better off without them. So can we flip that? Because obviously that makes us suffer, right? When you tell that story, what happens in your body? I think my body goes, contraction. Ugh. When I start pointing a finger at another person like that, I'm not happy. I'm not free. I'm all contracted. So let's see if we can flip it. What might a compassion story tell us about the same situation? Well, if we're telling the story of compassion, we can look around and we can see that there are large societal changes happening right now. Big changes, economic changes. Um, the makeup of our country is changing. 
These things hurt a lot of people. Change is hard. And rural white people are losing a lot. They're losing their prominence and their position. You know, many people have lost their jobs and they see their small towns withering away. And for some of those people, or maybe many of those people, they probably feel like we are causing it, or at least not resisting it, or at least not understanding what's happening for them. So our story of conflict looks at those things and says, well, it's your fault. Go to school and get a new job. But compassion, the compassion story might be different and ask something like, so I see that this is what's happening. How can we work together to solve these problems? That's not so much conflict. That's more about compassion. That's, that's the kind of story that brings us back together instead of drives us further apart. So another way we might use this, flip this story to compassion is to, to, to recognize that for a lot of people, authority it does not feel trustworthy. You know, and that is true. Sometimes authority is not trustworthy. I've experienced that in my life. So just imagine someone of them saying something like this to us. Well, I gave my life to this farm or this factory or this small town. And now the experts are coming in here and destroying it. We're the experts, right? Or another, another person might say to you something like, well, I agree with what Reagan said. The government isn't the solution. It's the problem. Right? Or how about, how about hearing this from, quote, them? Yeah, the hospital charged me thousands of dollars for an ER visit. I'm not putting their vaccine in my arm. Those people aren't trustworthy. They ripped me off. So conflict story, when you hear that kind of stuff, might say something. Yeah, but you're the one who's not trustworthy, Mr. AK-47. But what about compassion? How can we flip that so that instead of a conflict story, we have a compassionate story? I think compassion might hear all those things and say, wow, I don't blame you for feeling this way. I had no idea. How can I help? How can I help? I want to clarify that flipping the story isn't about capitulating. It's not about losing the argument. It's about freeing yourself from the prison of self-concern and seeing uh, the world as we instead of just me and you. Even when we include somebody who's really suffering and maybe saying things that are hurtful and untrue, compassion still welcomes that kind of a we. And Tori Zenji, who was a, a 17th century um, 
Japanese Zen master, 18th century, excuse me, wrote really well about flipping the story here. He said, we can be especially sympathetic and affectionate with foolish people, particularly with someone who has become a sworn enemy and persecutes us with abusive language. That very abuse conveys the Buddha's boundless loving kindness. It's a compassionate device to liberate us entirely from the mean-spirited delusions that we've built up with our wrongful conduct from the beginningless past. With our response to such abuse, we completely relinquish ourselves, and the most profound and pure faith arises. We don't have to wait for our adversary not to say untrue or hurtful things, because with our response to that, we completely relinquish ourselves and the most profound and pure faith arises. When we flip from the story of conflict to the story of compassion, we change our whole way of being in the world from one of clamping down to opening up. I think that's what he means by the most profound and pure faith arises. We find that when we open our hearts with compassion instead of conflict, we have access to a whole other set of possible responses, a whole nother kind of energy for helping that we don't have when we're stuck in conflict stories. So this isn't about losing or capitulating. This is about touching a much deeper sense of power that can solve these issues for everyone, not just me and us, but everyone. Okay. So that is the first method. The second method I call helping adversaries be more beautiful. Hmm. This comes directly from Thich Nhat Hanh. So usually we want our adversaries to be humiliated, to be exposed, to be defeated, to be canceled. But what if instead we, we tried to help them become more beautiful, more completely full of their own potential? In our sutra, the five ways of putting an end to anger, there's this beautiful image that I've always loved. And the image is, in dealing with an adversary, how do you do this? How do you make them more beautiful? Well, imagine you were living in India long ago, and it's very, very hot and dusty. And you've been traveling a long time, and you're thirsty, and there's no water anywhere. And you come to a crossroads. And in the crossroads, there's a buffalo's footprint. And in the buffalo's footprint, there is some water, the only water you can find. But if you were to try and scoop up that water with your hand or with a leaf to drink it, you would muddy the water and make it undrinkable. So instead, you put your hands and your knees down on the earth and you put your lips directly in the water and you draw the water into your mouth without disturbing it 
so the water can be its most beautiful and its most nourishing. I love that image. You know, the idea of, of not disturbing the water so that the water can be most beautiful, most nourishing and healing. I, I have a, a similar experience with the bell that's here that, that I have. So I got this bell, I think, 15 or 20 years or so ago. And one of the brothers from Deer Park and I went to a bell store somewhere, I think, in San Diego. I can't remember exactly. And it was, a, it was an Asian furniture store that had bells in the back. So we went there and we spent some time uh, sampling the bells and it was so much fun and finding the ones that really sounded great and the ones that sounded, nah. and we settled on this bell. And so the, the, the shop owner uh, packed it up and shipped it home to me. And when, during the shipping, somehow it got damaged. And when I first invited the bell, it sounded horrible. It buzzed. And I thought, oh no, this is awful. You know, that was expensive. And, and here now it's ruined. And, uh, you know, I was so disappointed. But what I did was I spent a lot of time with the bell. And I, I invited it this way and that way and in this position and that position. And, and finally I discovered if I invite it right there, it sings beautifully. No buzzing Nothing. It's just the beautiful, pure sound of the bell. So I had to learn to help the bell be more beautiful. If I'd insisted that the bell be what I wanted, a bell I could invite in any place, you know, without any care, then it wouldn't have been beautiful. But if I get to know the bell really deeply and know how to work with the bell, then suddenly it becomes very beautiful again. Now, um, so I guess to make this really practical, how can we help people trapped by ideology and conspiracy theories to be more beautiful? Because I think that's happening a lot. I th we can learn from um, from the psychologists that 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 work to help people reintegrate after leaving a cult, and they have three simple steps that they do that we might be able to learn from. So the first step in helping anyone reintegrate from uh, being caught by an ideology or a conspiracy theory is to simply listen to them. Listen to them without judgment, without the need to, to push back against them. You know, we, we can hear what they're saying without judging or reacting. Simply hear. And in doing that, we can lay the seeds for a trusting relationship. So the first step is to listen without judgment. Then the second step is to explore the past suffering that made this ideology or this cult attractive. What was the past suffering that opened the door to this way of thinking. And again, not to correct them, 
but just to support them as they see into their past hurts. And so our job in this second step, like the first step in listening, is just to help them voice their own insights. Their own insights. Not give them ours. So we listen without judgment. We, we create a condition where they can explore the conditions that gave rise to them being receptive. And then the third one is to support their growth as they find their way home. Well, they can find their way home with our loving support as a listener, as someone who is a helper. And we can allow them to reintegrate at their own pace. So you might notice that in all three of these steps, the listening, the helping to explore past suffering, and supporting their growth and reintegration, never are we the one correcting them. Never are we doing what we do in the conflict stories, which is create conditions in which we are right and they are wrong, and if and they're going to have to lose in order to reintegrate back into, into our rightness. It doesn't do any of that. It's simply listening and opening the door to understanding and then opening the door to reintegration. Do I find those helpful? Um, let's see if I can if I can apply those to the people in my life that are currently caught in conspiracy theories and um, and this kind of thinking. And luckily, too, in Zen, we have a really great model um, for how to do this work. And Gail presented to us recently the um, uh, Bodhisattva's names. Is right, Gail? You presented that. Was that? Correct? Yeah, thanks. And I, I just want to read the one on Sadhaparibhuta. Sadhaparibhuta is the never disparaging bodhisattva that knows how to help people be more beautiful. So I'll read this last paragraph. We invoke your name, Sadhaparibhuta. We aspire to learn your way of never disparaging or underestimating any living being with great respect, you say to all you meet, you are someone of great value. You have Buddha nature. I see this potential in you. We will look with a wise, compassionate gaze, so we are able to hold up a mirror where others can see their ultimate nature reflected. We will remind people who feel worthless that they too are a precious wonder of life. We vow to water only the positive seeds in ourselves and in others so that our thoughts, words, and actions can encourage confidence and self-acceptance in ourselves, our children, our loved ones, and in everyone we meet. Inspired by the great faith and insight that everyone is Buddha, we will practice your way of patience and inclusiveness so we can liberate ourselves from ignorance and misunderstanding and offer freedom, peace, and joy to ourselves and to our society. What an amazing and beautiful aspiration. 
to never disparage others, to help them be more beautiful. So why does Sariparabhuta never uh, disparage anyone? Because he knows that all distinctions are empty. Us and them, you and me, right and wrong, all these are empty. And we make categories that are real in the relative dimension, but meaningless in the ultimate dimension. You know, in, in the, in the um, relative dimension, you and me are important distinctions. But in the ultimate dimension, you and me means nothing. There's only us, we, one. So Sadaparibhuta knows that to disparage one part of the whole is to disparage everything. For Sadaparibhuta, if if you are to, if he were to, or she were to attack an adversary, it'd be none other than attacking herself. None other. And who wants to do that? Who wants to waste this one precious life denigrating yourself? The invitation here is to see as deeply as Sadaparibhuta. Red and blue, us and them, they're all distinctions without a difference. And rather than using hatred to cut everything in two, Let's use the wisdom of Sadaparibhuta to cut everything in one. Cut everything in one. That's how to love your adversary. Don't cut in two, cut into one. Okay, so just a little review here. Adversaries are necessary. We can't do without them. We're better off with them. And we can learn to love our adversaries by flipping the story from conflict to compassion and by making our adversaries more beautiful. And we can use the wisdom of Sadaparibhuta to never disparage another and to rejoin what has been divided. Thank you all so much for your kind attention.